Today we have a lot uh, to do and we're going to, we're going to get it done. So let's pray and then we're going to look at resurrections and judgments and individual eschatology. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for this time to be together. Thank you for um, our study here of the end times and how exciting that is, how, how much hope it gives us and how it reminds us that we are to live as if this is the final day, that we are to live with righteousness and joy and peace and obedience to you. I pray that today would inspire us uh, toward that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, thank you for putting up with uh, two weeks ago our impromptu uh, no notes, no slides session. thought that was fun. Um, never want to do it again. <coughs> uh, today we're going to do resurrections and judgments and individual eschatology. And basically, just to kind of show you how accessible... Uh, eschatology is basically today I'm just going to be reading you a whole lot of scripture because as you read the Bible um, eschatology makes itself clear so um, it, it is not uh, it is not something that's only accessible to the uh, privileged few up in academia in their white towers so this is just um, just reading the Bible primarily so I do have a lot to cover so I'm going to keep a pretty good clip going today I want to talk first about the progressive revelation of resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection. Um, the resurrection was taught, generally speaking, in the Old Testament. We have, uh, I have some references up there in Job, Exodus, uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 16, Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, and so forth. Um, probably one of the clearest is Job 19, 25, and 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That is a resurrection verse. There, it can't be clearer than that. Exodus 3, 6. God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And of course, Christ amplified our understanding of that verse um, when he said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. This is John 5, beginning in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good, that is, re repented and received Christ by faith, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And, of course, um, going back to the Exodus 3 passage, um, Jesus used the I am the God of Abraham to prove the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, he, he basically said, uh, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham is alive. And so uh, he used that to speak of the resurrection. The resurrection is demonstrated by Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then you get, uh, this is the progression. Now you get by the Apostle Paul, the doctrine of the resurrection is explained in detail. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 58 is this massive section on resurrection. Uh, I, I would love to preach just those verses some at some point. Um, then also 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. So the doctrine of the resurrection has progressed and is a classic example of progressive revelation um, <clears throat> in the... In, from Old Testament to New Testament, which is why uh, you can't hold to New Testament priority where the New Testament now reinterprets the old. Um, if you're going to say it reinterprets the old in certain things, you must logically say it reinterprets the Old Testament in everything. And so now you change the meaning of everything. Uh, progressive revelation just says that, that uh, the saints of old had information, but just not as much as we have now. And so we're, we're very, very blessed. So let's look at the order of resurrection. And we uh, kind of did this by memory last time just for fun. We have the resurrection of Christ, um, the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And, and this term right here, the first fruits, is so encouraging to us because what does that tell us? It tells us that more is coming. Um, and that is us, of course. Then you have those who belong to Christ uh, at his coming. Who, who belongs to Christ right now? That is the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. As the firstfruits, what Christ is, is he's the pledge. He is the down payment of our future resurrection. Isn't that great that he didn't, that he, he didn't 
do something different and make us just have to believe by blind faith that we will be raised from the dead. He is a literal example of what will happen to us. Christ's resurrection was also accompanied by a token resurrection of uh, other saints. Matthew 27, uh, beginning in verse 52, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So there's just a little, a little sample. Let me show you kind of what's going to happen just in, in one place. Um, probably similar to the miracles of Jesus, similar to the healings. It's not that, that Jesus ended disease for all time, and certainly with his resurrection, he didn't end death temporally for all time. But he did give examples of, let me show you with my healings what a disease-free world looks like, and let me show you with my resurrection and all these other resurrections what a death-free world looks like. And so uh, it was, some have called it a token resurrection. This is an example. Then you have the two witnesses of the tribulation. Revelation 11, 11 and 12, they were killed. Three and a half days later, they're raised from the dead and they ascend into heaven. And then we take, uh, is coming next, the Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation. From Daniel chapter 12, at that time Michael shall arise, or shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And, and so that clearly happens at the end of the tribulation. <clears throat> um, and there, there's more issues in there that not only includes Old Testament saints being raised, but there's uh, an overlapping prophecy in there of what happens um, uh, later on at the great white throne judgment. Then you have the tribulation martyrs at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then finally you have the resurrection of the wicked. Later on in Revelation 20. Again, I'm just reading the Bible to you here. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And here it comes. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who, who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So let me just give you a couple details about that. What, what's the time involved? Well, it's at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Revelation 20, verse 5 is very clear about that. Um, and it is at the time of the great white throne judgment. That's the, that's the same time. Uh, notice what they're named. Uh, the, the, this judgment is named Acts 24. I wonder if I have that somewhere. I don't have that anywhere. Um, I do. Look, all that detail there. I didn't realize that. <clears throat> uh, so there's the time. End of the millennium, uh, the great white throne judgment. It's named other things. It's the resurrection of the unjust. Uh, Acts 24, 15. That's, that's as clear as you can get, that there is a resurrection. Um, and so uh, all human beings will be resurrected. And it's called the resurrection of judgment in John 5, uh, 29 as well. Who's involved? All the unsaved people of all of human history. This is when bad things happen to you because of bad people. We find hope looking ahead to the great white throne judgment because this is when every single human being will be called into account. Um, all those who have not received Christ. And so... Um, all the psalms that you read where uh, David and other psalmists beg God for vindication. This is it. This is vindication. Um, not just the temporal judgment of, of death, but the final judgment. What are the results? Unsaved people are judged according to their works. Revelation twenty twelve and 13, and this will constitute the second death. Um, and just a, just a side note here, I don't have this up here. Remember when we talked about 
um, the sovereignty of God and the different means that he uses. Uh, when we talked about the concept of double predestination, is people have a, they have problems saying God sends people to heaven and God sends people to hell. Um, because of God's sovereignty, that is technically true. But what we differentiated was is that God uses different means. The means of sending people to heaven is what? It is grace. It is his grace. The means of sending people to hell is they are responsible for their own deeds. They're judged according to their own works. Um, and so there's different means still under the sovereignty of God. So if somebody says, does God send people to hell? If they're a believer, say yes and explain the theology. If they're not a believer, say no. People send themselves to hell by virtue of their own works. Both are true. Does that make sense? So it depends on who you're speaking to. And, and <clears throat> because trying to explain to an unbeliever that, yes, uh, God sends people to hell, it relieves them of their own responsibility and it gives them moral courage to say, well, then I don't want anything to do with that kind of God, even though they're wrong. So we don't want to give them uh, false moral courage. But then uh, going back to uh, the results, spiritual death is continued and made permanent. And so it is eternal death. Physical death is repeated and made permanent. Uh, but, uh, and this is where we're a little fuzzy, uh, I, I do take the position that the, the resurrection body is used to experience judgment. Um, so whatever you want to call the second death, do they die? And then uh, I, I think at that point, the, the experience of death is so different than what we even understand. Um, I do believe that the resurrection body is used to experience judgment. I can't prove that um, with uh, hard, hard evidence. But I do know this. Um, hell is called by the Lord Jesus Christ the place that the worm does not die. Um, it speaks, uh, the worm not dying speaks of, of inhabiting decaying bodies, but they never run out of food kind of a thing. It's a disgusting picture, but it is a picture of, of bodies. Scripture uses the phrase second death that doesn't necessarily mean a non-physical existence. Um, just as believers have a resurrected body to enjoy God's favor for eternity, unbelievers, in my view, have a resurrected body to enjoy or experience, rather, God's wrath. That's on the recording. Sorry, sorry, whoever's listening to that. Um, we do know this. Um, Hades and hell are not the same place because Revelation 20, Hades, death and Hades, are thrown into hell. Uh, what, what is Hades? It is basically the current waiting room for judgment. Um, but we have an account. We have an eyewitness account of what Hades is like from Luke 16. It includes flames and it includes a man with a body who is there begging for Abraham to send Lazarus, uh, not the Lazarus who's raised from the dead, but a different Lazarus, to come and cool the tip of his tongue with water. So the, clearly a resurrection, resurrected body of some sort there. Um, that's, not, that's not final proof, but it's pretty good. Uh, what is the first death being cast into Hades at physical death, the second death being cast into the lake of fire after resurrection and judgment? Now, let's get to the more fun stuff. The resurrection body of the saints. I just gave you a little checklist here. The pattern of the resurrection body will be the resurrection body of Christ. That, that, is, that is our pattern. Uh, Philippians 3.21 who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's a Greek word for, for like, which means like. It's, it's the same. It's similar by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we may expect to have the same type of body that Christ has. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, who's the man of dust? Adam, who became dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That, that's poetic. I mean, that's scriptural poetry right there. I, who used to be of the man of dust, now will bear the image of the man of heaven. That's a tremendous promise. So that is our pattern. So whatever Jesus did on earth in his resurrection body, we have 40 precious days that we study the things that he did. Um, you know, who, who knows? Uh, we, we will be like him in, in, those, in that fashion. We, it is a genuine body, hands, feet, flesh, bones. Uh, we will be interested in eating and drinking 
For example, Luke 24, beginning in verse 39, see my hand, this is Jesus, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they were, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? So the whole idea, and I've preached this before, the whole idea that going to heaven means we won't want food or water or anything like that, that's ridiculous. We're made to want those things. Um, heaven, our heavenly existence, our resurrection existence will simply be the glorified, perfected version of our world now. That's, that's exciting. Um, a third check, check off list here. The resurrection body will in some way be related to the same body that experienced death. So who you are now is who you are going to be in eternity. And you might say, well, that's disappointing. Um, I'm careful not to make eye contact with any, any person. <laughs> but you've never seen the perfected, glorified version of yourself with a little stamp of approval saying, made exactly as I intended. Um, you've never seen the glorified, perfected version of yourself as we looked at a couple of weeks ago uh, with the with the, the tattoos, so to speak, of God's city, God's name, and the na- new name of Christ. Um, you've never seen that body. You've never seen that person. So you will be, it, it won't be like you're walking around trying to figure out who everybody is. You, you'll know uh, who you are. You'll know who um, others are. First Corinthians fifteen thirty six through 38, Paul is very clear that the body you have is the one that will be resurrected. And by the way, uh, Job 19, that passage I read earlier, also indicates the same thing. The resurrection body is incorruptible. It is glorious. I get those words from 1 Corinthians 15, not making that up. And the resurrection body will be a spiritual body. Not, it doesn't mean invisible. It means spiritual in every sense of, of the fact that all that is perfect spiritually is joined with all that is perfect um, physically, and it's all together. Um, 1 Corinthians 15:44 it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body if there's a natural body there is also a spiritual body uh, in other words you can do experience and perceive all things spiritually in the body that you have um, I, i'll give you an example uh, right now uh, angels are invisible ministering spirits right and we know from two places in Hebrews that they are ministering on the earth at some level. We know from uh, Jacob's uh, view of heaven, we, we see the, the famous Jacob staircase or ladder where they're going back and forth. In your spiritual bodies, you will see all things spiritual. You will see the angels. You will see the glory of God. God is invisible and can't be seen, but you'll see the manifestation of his glory um, with no danger to yourself. So... All things spiritual will be true of you as well. Um, What has humanity, side note here, what has humanity and even even Christianity, wrongly so, tried to do for all time? We've tried to separate the, the physical from the spiritual to say that the physical is bad, the spiritual is good. We've been trying to do that forever. Um, And in a spiritual body, all things come together as the way they should have been. All right, we did the resurrection body of the saints. Now back to judgment. What is the nature of the judgments? And let me, let me explain this word first of all. Judgment is a term in scripture that can mean bad guys getting nailed by God. Okay, it can mean that and often does. But judgment in its more pure form simply means that. That a person is judged, is evaluated. How will we be evaluated? We will be evaluated based on the merits of Christ. That's the doctrine of justification, and that's glorious. And on top of that, the bonus, uh, bonus material here is that we also will be evaluated according to the good works we did while in Christ. Not for the purpose of determining salvation, but for the purpose of determining reward. Um, so... Uh, so judgment is just a general term, but most of the time uh, in Scripture, and when we think of it, we think of judgment as a as a negative thing. Um, and from the pulpit, I'll very often say, "Beware of the judgment of God," and we all understand what that means. But let's look at the first of all the nature of judgment. The purpose of final judgment is to reveal the works of the individual and to reward him accordingly, um, not to determine destiny. This is important. Um, 
the, the general picture that people have of the judgment of God, unbelievers in particular, is that, well, I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to make my case. I'm going to tell them all the good things I, I did. And at that point, God will decide, yes, I think I'll let you into heaven. I think an important thing to let unbelievers know is that your destiny has already been secured. Right now, you're headed toward hell. That's already secured. You do have an opportunity to change your destiny um, if you will receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to explain the intricacies of election and and double election and all that kind of stuff um, to the unbeliever. But the general uh, view of the unbeliever is that my destiny will be determined when I stand before God. That is not the case. Um, The verdict has already been given. God simply gives the evidence for the verdict. Does that make sense? So usually it's the other way around in the human court. Evidence first, verdict second. Uh, With God, the verdict is already in. He's simply giving you the evidence. Um, All people, every human being will be judged by their works. Christians are admitted into heaven on the basis of the merits of Christ and our reward is judged by our works. Unbelievers are uh, admitted into hell because of their works. So there are works involved all around. Ours just don't have anything to do with our salvation. Who is the one who judges? That will be Jesus Christ. Now, in a very general sense, obviously, God is the judge of all. Hebrews 12, 23 says this. But the mediating judge in the final judgments of, is Christ. Um, by the way, in the great, the, great, great, the, great, the great white throne in Revelation 20, it never says that Jesus is on the throne. But we cross-reference that with John 5, 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Who is on the great white throne? It is the Son. It is Jesus Christ. Now, there are some who hold to, just to make you aware of what we call the general judgment view. The general judgment view. And this says that there's no separate believer's judgment at all, but there's just one big resurrection and one big judgment that happens at the second coming. Um, Some who hold amillennialism hold to this because amillennialism, as we said when we uh, talked about that, uh, basically has the most simple timeline of all time. There's now, there's a straight line, and then there's everything else, and, and that's it. And so with that simplistic view, and I would call it overly simplistic view, now all judgments, everything has to happen at the end. There's just kind of a big conflagration of all kinds of judgments. Um, so they would say that the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment seat of God, Romans 14.10, are both synonymous for the great white throne judgment. And you can just write those uh, references down and they would support this from john 5 28 which i already read to you do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment so their support is when jesus says an hour is coming they said see that's one time that's one big event um, that both the righteous and the unrighteous will be judged at the same time. Uh, you know your Bible well enough. Does an hour always mean an hour? No. It, it, it can be very broad. Just in the previous chapter, Jesus used the term hour to include the entire church age. Uh, he said in John fourteen or John four twenty one, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. We're in that hour right now. This is the age of the church. So you can't, you can't um, take the general judgment view just based on John 5, 28. That's uh, too picky, too choosy. This is supported by the judgment of the sheep and goats. Um, Matthew 25, they would say, well, see, that judgment happens on earth. That's, that's everybody being judged, the sheep and goats. And so you, you would ask the question, so that judgment is on earth, right? And they would say, yes. Revelation 20, verse 11, though, says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. That's a judgment in the heavenlies. That's a different location. Earth, 
heavenlies. There's at least two different locations. What does that mean? It means there are multiple judgments. So the, the general judgment view doesn't really hold water. Um, if you're having a friendly conversation with somebody who's amillennial, uh, ask them about the judgments. When do they all happen? Um, and you just simply ask them to compare Matthew 25 to Revelation 20, and geographically they're in two different places. So it gets really hard to, to uh, hold that view. Let's look now at the eschatological judgments, the, the, the final judgments. We have the judgment seat of Christ. I've already given you some, some references. I'll read a couple to you. 1 Corinthians three fourteen and 15. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That is the judgment seat of Christ um, for Christians. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness, will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So in your case, the judgment seat of Christ, um, that's payday. That's, that's an exciting time. Um, there are theories about some corrections as well, but I don't see those as clear in Scripture as the commendation. You will expect to be able to stand before God and receive commendation for the things you have done that were according to his will. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Better translation, good or worthless. Um, so there's, that's the judgment seat of Christ. Then you have the judgment of tribulation saints. Revelation 20, 4 through 6. They're resurrected. They're given the privilege to reign with Christ for a thousand years. It seems that, that uh, tribulation saints will be given some special honors and privileges because they're, they're the ones who literally stood against Antichrist and lost their lives as a result. So they get, they get extra honors. <clears throat> um, somebody asked me this question. I'm going to divert for just a minute. Ask me the question. You know, it seems like some people get more honors than others. Like Israel is more honored than the church. I, I would debate that. Um, but uh, here, the tribulation saints, they seem to be, get an extra honor that, that others don't get. I, I think a good way to picture this is after a major battle, that when the soldiers who all did their part are standing in a line and the general or the president has a stack of medals to hand out. And they're all getting medals. Some are getting medals for different things than others are. But everybody stands there unified. Everybody stands there proud. Everybody did their part. Um, and I don't, I don't think I've ever seen uh, a, a guy with, for example, a Navy cross hanging on his uniform start crying and having a fit when the guy next to him got something better. Um, they all did their part. They're all proud of the reward they received because they did what they were called to do. So I think that's a good way to look at it. Moving right along, judgment of the Old Testament saints. Daniel 12, 1 and 2, I've already read the text, um, but it does say that some will be raised to everlasting life, um, which would be uh, their, their reward and whatever other rewards the Lord chooses to give. Then you have the judgment of living Israel. Spend a moment on this. You have a national revival at the end of the Great Tribulation, sometime in there and in connection with the second coming. Uh, th this is just literally one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. They're looking on him whom they pierce. That may be indicative of repentance prior to Christ's uh, return. And so uh, that's, that's how we would take that. And then before the Jews uh, enter the land in preparation for the kingdom, they're judged in the wilderness. We get this from Ezekiel chapter 20. And I want to read several verses to you from beginning of verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you and I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath outpoured. 
And then I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face, as I enter into judgment with your as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. There seems to be a private personal judgment with all the living Jews on earth near the end of the great tribulation out in the wilderness. Nobody sees it, but Israel and God. Um, That's a phenomenal thought. And what does he promise? He said, I will purge the unbelievers from you and the rest of you get to go home. That's, uh, That's tremendous. At this time then, the rebellious Jews are separated and they are executed. Zechariah 13.9 says one third of the nation survives the tribulation and the judgment. So in other words, two out of three will be judged. That is, that is God's uh, decree. Believing Jews then are illustrated by the five virgins of Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. Then you have the judgment of Gentile nations. <clears throat> judgment of Gentile nations. Joel 3 For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage of Israel, because they have scattered among them the nations and have divided up my land. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, speaks of the same thing. It's known as the sheep and the goat judgment. The basis of the judgment is how they treated believing Jews. That was their, that was the basis of the judgment. And the purpose is to determine who enters the millennium. Those who are not saved are executed. They are killed. According to Matthew 25. Then you have the judgment of Satan and falling, fallen angels. Halfway through the tribulation, he is cast out of heaven, confined to earth. Um, Revelation 12. We, we know that even now, uh, uh, Paul tells us that Satan is the great accuser who even today accuses the saints. But halfway through the Great Tribulation, that's done. Or through the Tribulation, not the Great Tribulation. At the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, Satan will be bound. He'll be thrown into the abyss. <clears throat> Revelation 20 and, at, and his release at the end of the Millennium. And after a brief rebellion, he will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation seven, uh, 20 verse 7 and following. And then finally, you have the great white throne judgment of all the wicked that we've already spoken of after crushing the rebellion. At the end of the millennium, all the dead are, all the unsaved um, on earth at that point are dead. All the unsaved dead of all time uh, will be brought to the great white throne. So the, what, what's the final purpose of that rebellion of Satan at the end when Satan is released? from the abyss and he gathers one more rebellion against Christ at the end of the millennium and Christ crushes it. What is the what is the point of that? At that moment in time, every single unbeliever from every age is dead. There is no living unbeliever. What does he do then? Then he resurrects all of them and brings them to the great great white throne. They're judged on the basis of their evil works which determine their eternal punishment. Um, Old Testament Sheol, New Testament, Hades, basically same thing, merges with the lake of fire at that point. Now, there is a debate on the order of events here, and I've, I've brought this up uh, to you before. The majority view is that now what happens is this event, the judgment of the heavens and the earth, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But I, I don't think that's what happens next. I, I personally put the judgment of the heavens and the earth right here between judgment of Satan and fallen angels and the great white throne judgment um, of all the wicked. And, and the reason for that, and maybe even up here, but definitely before great white throne. Because Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Um, I, I think that is, the, that is the melting down, and I take the remade uh, uh, view rather than the complete destruction view, but that is the heavens and the earth melted down. No place to go. And so, um, so we could debate that, uh, that order. Okay, you guys doing okay? I know we're doing a lot in times in 45 minutes. Is that, is that 
That is in order, yes. Except, except that those are debatable. Yeah. Individual eschatology. Now it gets a little bit more personal. Uh, the basic individual eschatology that that you, the, your average evangelical Christian knows is that if I'm a Christian, I, when I die, I go to heaven. That, that's all we know. I want to give you a little more uh, than that. What is the nature of death? The nature of death is separation. That's the basic meaning of death. The three kinds of death are taught in Scripture. There is spiritual death, spiritual separation from God. Ephesians 2, 1 and following uh, speaks of the lifelessness of your spiritual nature resulting in your spiritual uh, separation from the person of God. Um, physical death, that is the temporary separation of the soul from the body. And then eternal death, of course, eternal separation of the person from God following resurrection. So, the eternal death, um, eternal death is experienced only by those who do not accept Christ as Savior. We were in spiritual death. Now we're in spiritual life. We will be in physical death, but then we will be in eternal life. So what was the significance of, de- of death to um, the Old Testament saints? Um, i just put a little chart up here for you. I, I, won't, I don't have time to go through all of this, but basically... Um, to the old covenant saints, death was generally regarded as a fairly dreadful experience. Um, they didn't have a lot of information. Isaiah 38, beginning in verse 10. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not look on the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Now, the fear of death was somewhat alleviated by initial uh, revelation of resurrections, which I've listed for you already. The Old Testament saints did look forward to eternal life after resurrection, but it was their their view of eternal life was much more earthy. you know, we, Christians tend to, if they're not well taught, they tend to think of heaven as that place up in the sky where it always will be for all time. Um, Jews tended to skip ahead to a new earth. Um, in fact, uh, it, whether they called it that or not, uh, Hebrews eleven sixteen testifies that as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And what they meant by heavenly one is that everything on earth has been remade. That was generally their view. Um, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So that was a correct view. We just have more information about what happens between now and then. How about the New Covenant saints? Oh, we're so blessed. I I mean, I'm so glad I don't have to derive everything I believe about resurrection and death from Job 19, 25, and 26. Um, We have the New Testament. For us, death is no longer feared. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And, and uh, our, our classic passage from 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? I, I love reading that verse. I read that verse, those verses at almost every funeral I do because there is, no, there is no sting in death. For us, death is the means of entering the presence of Christ. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. I, I, have, I have had the joy, even just since being at Grace, of being in the hospital numbers of times with saints who are about to die. And you know, they're so excited. It's, you know, I, I'm not paying any more bills. I'm not worrying about all this stuff. I don't care about anything else. And I, I have witnessed joy that is just breathtaking to see that. And, and uh, there's a sense of, uh, a sense of absolute um, peace and calm, um, it's, it's phenomenal because we have this revelation. Second Corinthians 5.8, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's a godly attitude. I want to be at home with the Lord. The example of Christ's resurrection gives us confidence in our resurrection. First Corinthians 15.20, I already read this. We're the first fruits of those who are asleep, or he is rather, and so we will join him. Um, the, the mystery and the difficulty of death is softened by all the, the pictures that the Bible gives us of death. It's pictured as sleep. It's pictured as taking down a tent. It's pictured as coming home. You ever go camping 
and that tent seems pretty good when you set it up. Isn't this great? Five days later, you're like, I am tired of this. I just want my bed. I want, and when you take down the tent, that's a good thing, right? I remember taking the kids camping. I always told Sylvia, um, the only thing better than going camping is going home when you're done camping. <laughs> that's really true. And that death is not, not inevitable, by the way. As long as you're alive, we live with a hope. And that hope is that you won't see death. Uh, behold, I tell you a mystery. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. I love the fact that whenever Paul speaks of the rapture, whether it's 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians 4, he always uses a plural personal pronoun, we. Like, I might be there with you guys, and I hope so. How about the intermediate state? I have preached entire messages on this, so I won't be able to do justice to this. Um, What is it? The intermediate state is the conscious existence of both the godly and the ungodly between physical death and the resurrection. Some biblical terms that describe the intermediate state. um, Sheol is used about 65 times in the Old Testament. just means the grave, means the the abyss, the pit. Um, It can have a good connotation. It can have a bad connotation. It's just general. Um, Hades. 10 or 11 times in the New Testament, depending on which Greek text you use. Uh, the King James Version always translated it hell, which is confusing because Hades and hell are not the same place. Um, New American Standard translates it Hades every time. ESV translates Hades nine times. gets it uh, most of the time. Sheol and Hades are defined the same way. It's the place where departed spirits are confined at physical death. Described that way in Psalm 16 and in Acts chapter 2 also. Other terms for the intermediate state we see Abraham's bosom or in the in the uh, ESV Abraham's side uh, Luke 16 uh, paradise Jesus called the place that we go intermediate uh, d- to be paradise um, is called lowest Sheol in Deuteronomy 32 um, it's called heaven King James Version 582 times um, it's a Hebrew word uh, Shemayim and it means the heights It means the highest places. Um, The Greek word used, uranos, it means that which is raised up and which is lofty. Um, The the first heaven is the sky, the breathable atmosphere. It's called the second heaven, which is the planetary heaven. And then uh, more specific to eschatology, the third heaven where God dwells. Um, Probably one of the most famous uh, Bible studies, really wouldn't even set a sermon's Bible studies that John MacArthur ever did was on, on heaven. And he, he famously described how to know where heaven is and that biblically he said heaven is up because on earth everything is up, right? And he said first heaven is here, second heaven is here, so heaven where you're going is up. And he preached a whole sermon on the upness of heaven. <clears throat> how about us? What's our intermediate state? A little checklist here. Nothing can separate you from Christ, including death. Romans 8, believers are assured that death brings them immediately into the presence of Christ. There is no, there is no intermediate stage. Uh, there is no purgatory. There is no waiting room. We're with the Lord. Philippians 1, we depart and we are with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, we're away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, um, people like uh, Seventh-day Adventists and others believe in the idea of soul sleep. That is, that is a wrong use of the metaphor of sleep uh, for death. Um, it's, the basis, it's a very poor basis for doctrine, um, but that would be the idea that when you die, you become unconscious until the final judgment. Scripture doesn't support that at all. Um, Philippians 1.23 tells us that the intermediate state is preferred to current life, that it will be better. And that's a, that is a great, great comfort to us. <clears throat> Souls in the intermediate state are said to be resting. Uh, Revelation four thirteen. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. It doesn't mean inactivity and indifference. Um, it's the idea of absolute satisfaction, absolute, I have done my part. I have done what I was called to do. Um, there's satisfaction in service. You're, you're freed from all evil. There's a restfulness. 
and yet there is still a state of incompleteness. First um, Thessalonians 4, we do await our final resurrection. Rewards in the intermediate state are not yet distributed, apparently. Second Corinthians, Second Timothy 4, 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And we would take uh, rewards being distributed during the Great Tribulation. When, um, by the way, this is one of the you know, reason number 758 why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture and resurrection of the saints because they have to all be together to all receive their rewards. So that doesn't happen in the intermediate state. It happens um, during the great tribulation which is happening on earth. <clears throat> and then you may or may not have an intermediate body. I do take the intermediate body view. The transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, they appeared in bodies. And they were recognizable, by the way. Um, Luke chapter 16, both the dead rich man in Hades and the righteous poor man both have bodies. They're, they're visible. Um, Abraham has a body. So that's as much as we know, but it's pretty good evidence. And then finally, what is the intermediate state of the unbeliever? Sheol or Hades, sometimes probably wrongly translated hell. Uh, and it's not a wrong translation. It's just that it should differentiate between two different places. Um, is the place of present torment. Luke sixteen twenty three. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. You have unmet desires, pain, infinite despair, and memory of the unrighteous life that you lived. Um, I, I, would, I, I would love to always have the opportunity to show an unbeliever Luke 16. And say, just go through, what is this man enduring? In the future, Sheol, Hades, will be placed in the lake of fire, which is clearly the place of eternal punishment. So, there we have it. Resurrection, judgment, uh, personal eschatology. We have two minutes for questions. (laughs) Yes, Rebecca. Christ has been resurrected. He has a resurrected body. Yes. But his resurrected body has his wounds. Absolutely. And ours will not? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Um, since we're rewarded for, uh, for that which we do for the sake of Christ, there's, I can't point to chapter and verse, but it wouldn't surprise me at all uh, if, if, a, if a martyr uh, was allowed to hang on to a scar that he had um, as a trophy. I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I, I never thought about that before. Um, yeah, but I can't point to a, a verse that says that. We have resurrection bodies. Uh, I could probably, with equal, uh, with equal passion, say that Christ is the only one who did the work of, of the cross, and so he alone gets to bear those scars. So, um, but uh, Paul did say that we are completing what was incomplete in Christ. We are completing his suffering. In other words, that Christ suffered, but the body of Christ has not finished suffering yet. So, Interesting thought. I guess we'll find out. Probably the the wound on your knee from a bad bicycle wreck like I had when I was ten. I, I'm guessing that one's gone. But uh, so, other any other questions? I saw one hand over here. I thought, or over here, Nate. Okay. Just going back to the the judgment of the believers when you know we've heard the the illustration of you know the videotape of your life playing before God and angels. How are they highlighted? I mean, will that just be covered by Christ? And by the way, there was a whole lot over here that Christ covered. Or will, will we go through and, and bear that out before the Lord, even though we are forgiven and will be in heaven, will we face an account for all those things that we You know, so I, there's little pieces of evidence and a lot of good men. And the, the question is, for the recording, the question is, um, the, the things that we, the mistakes we've made, the sins we have committed which are obviously covered by the cross but will those be uh, revisited so to speak when we stand before the Lord little bits of evidence here and there Um, first of all there are theologians uh, who believe that when uh, the Bible says at the end of Revelation that God will wipe every tear away from your eye I I don't see this in the text but some take that as uh, the final weeping when God tells you all the ways you failed him Um, that's not in the text. That's pure 
uh, conjecture. But there's a couple little pieces of evidence. Um, I think of James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. Um, whether that's on earth or in heaven, it doesn't say. Uh, but definitely 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that your works will be judged and those that are worthless will be burned up. Um, so there has to be some sort of accounting there. Um, I, I think it's going to be, I don't think it's, go, it's something to dread. We're, we're to, we are to look forward to the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, we're, that's what scripture, the general tenor and tone is look forward to this. Um, but 1 Corinthians 3 does say there will some be some believers who enter heaven, but as one enters through a fire naked. So there will be uh, believers who come with minimal reward. And where that comes, how that comes about, like, can you erase your award? Uh, Apostle John seems to think so. He, he says at least once in his, in his little letters um, to not mess up the rewards you've already accrued. So there is a sense where you can fail in your life uh, to that point. You can't fail to your salvation. You can fail, but you will not ultimately fail. Um, you will not ultimately fail to the detriment of your own salvation. So uh, we get just enough hints to make us obey. I think that's where it is for me. So let me pray and I'll hang around for a few more questions if you want. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. To I, I know we went so fast through all this. And I pray, Lord, that those who are here might have the opportunity to go back and even look up these scriptures and be encouraged and be delighted. If we work so hard, Lord, to uh, try to extend our lives. We work so hard to make it to 80 instead of 78. And I think that when we stand before you, even in heaven as it is now, I think we will wonder, at least from my human mind, we'll wonder why we waited so long, why we are so eager to be here. Lord, may we be like a little child in the womb who has been warm and has been safe and cared for, but it's time to go into the real world. And our real world is the heavenly world with you. And we look forward to that. And I pray for each person here, Lord, that they would look forward to that and it would give them hope and comfort. And when we're having a bad day, that we can smile, at least inwardly, that there will be a day where there are no more bad days ever. What a great day that will be. I pray that all here would be encouraged. Amen.